of the podcast is basically this I, I was raised in the united states yes. i moved to the middle east and, and and in the united states i thought i understood the art world and then and, and i was trained i you know, got mm. my master's degree i was being a teacher a professor yes. at universities i moved to the united arab emirates and then i learned their art market there and then i moved to europe they're going oh you know this will be great like i understand the art world i can just come mm. in i can just be an artist and live in Europe completely wrong like mm. I, I have no fucking idea how the art world works like it, it's because yes. I I fell into being an academic yes. so I've been a professor and all this kind of stuff and so my job was being teaching uh, the next generation uh, about how to be an artist and then suddenly I realized I got to Europe and I'm like I don't know the answers I can't mm. teach the students because I've been such an academic that I'm out of touch. Well, which is the case of 99% of academics, actually. Which is another point of like why I'm unimpressed with academia right now. I'm sort of trying yeah. to transition away from academia because I realize just how far out of touch. I mean, yeah. Well, you can try to hack the academia from the inside in a way that you introduce a way of thinking or content that is not usually there uh, just in a package of regular teaching it would be great yeah if the academic administrators would allow me to do that mm -hmm. unfortunately a lot of times the administrators yeah. are take like these days administrators are taking more control over the content of the classroom than they ever did in the yeah. past so it's uh, so like I'm, I, I'm i'm sort of as i said Trying to transition away from academia. <laughs> this is all about you. So let's get you involved. Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? Of course. My name is Konstanty Szydłowski. Is there some English translation that I can call you? <laughs> Other, Not so, really. So well, Konstanty Con is, is a Latin name. So. Okay, Konstanty. Yes, that's correct. Okay, great. And now, so your background, you, we were talking a little bit before the podcast, your father originally created the gallery. Yeah, and it was 1996. 1996. And just for record, gallery name? Gallery name is Shudlovsky, just as our family name. Great. And it's located where? It's located in the center of Warsaw, at the corner of Street Wspólna and Poznańska. So it's a little bit a district where more and more galleries are settling down. And we have around four other galleries, perhaps even more now. I've heard some very interesting things. Like one of our previous guests was uh, Piotr Sikora, uh, was Polish, and he's talked very highly of the Polish art market uh, these days. That things have changed and gotten substantially better in the past 10, 15 years, kind of thing. So, have you seen some sort of progress and sort of upswing in things? Well, of course, it's. Um, in the perspective of 30 years, when there was practically no market, uh, it's obviously a big growth. Uh, but um, the smaller markets like Polish art market, even German art market or Italian, that's something very particular that, in my opinion, is very different from Asian art market or from American art market, because it's very often the question, of, especially for smaller galleries or, well, not this kind of big 
monsters. Yeah, the big blue uh, chips. Yes, yeah. exactly. The the clients, they are middle class people very often. Okay. Or in case of Poland, rich people or like upper class is actually middle class in Germany or in the United States. Right. You can hardly consider them upper class in England or wherever else mm -hmm. of that kind of countries. So uh, this is um, one of the major differences, I think, that we can address people who buy art uh, for their homes, for their pleasure, and they don't treat it like a kind of investment or a particular show off, like having this big boat that is uh, um, several feet longer than the biggest boat of a friend or uh, something. I was in the United Arab Emirates. I know all about that yes. sort of uh, showiness. <laughs> yes, well, that's, uh, that's very different than in Poland. And I think my experience in Germany and also we went to uh, art fair in Italy that um, there is a pretty uh, big group of people who are professionals in advertising, in design, photography, mm. who they are, who who are who are interested also in collecting, but not on a big scale collecting. There, this is kind of classical attitude of middle class. So just uh, collecting enough to fill up their home, their walls, yeah, and, and their to home, to feel it like a part of their uh, their qual their their life quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they don't. They're not going to have like a storage unit no, of no, like no, extra no. works that they're going to no, move no. in and out. No, no. Probably some of them. They are victims of their passion in the way that they have more that they can hang, which is uh, very often the case uh, among people that I know, and it's very touching. Oh yeah, I, I grew up in a household where my parents actually had different art, including like rugs and everything else for yes. for each season. So literally, so spring, yes. we would have the spring art and the spring, uh -huh. spring rugs and pillows and then summer and everything would have a different, whole different feel every time. It was lovely. So that's the way I grew up. It's mm. normal to me. Yeah. A bit Japanese way that yeah. you have. But it's for not normal season, for everybody. Yeah. No, so, no, no. That's true. I know. So now your gallery represents primarily Polish artists? That's right. Yeah. We represent primarily Polish artists because also Polish uh, uh, collectors uh, and not only collectors but also most of the uh, most of the people visiting gallery are mainly interested in what they can relate to what they know or and always it's a bit difficult to introduce something that is not really connected to local things uh, it's a challenge and we try to uh, live up to this challenge and um, uh, gradually we're introducing more and more uh, international artists, uh, mainly from places we know a little bit better, like Germany or Italy in particular. But uh, it is indeed a very, uh, very Polish uh, interest of the market, very also Polish uh, list of artists. But I must say also that many Polish artists uh, now they function as international artists, so it makes this thing a little bit more complex. When we are talking about Polish art, it's just a convention to address something and also a way of marketing things. Sure. 
because uh, you have many Polish artists that live in Germany, that they have German passports. And it depends on which, uh, depends on the situation. They will say that they are Germans or they will say they are Polish. If they get uh, an invitation from Polish Institute in Düsseldorf or in Berlin, they will be obviously considered as somebody with a Polish identity. Mm. Uh, but then they are selling in Art Basel as German artists or okay. whatever. Well, there is a series of names, but there is no point like telling uh, who is that because we will always forget somebody else and you know but uh, this is the case also of uh, polish artists in france uh, in in england in the united states well perhaps two uh, biggest uh, well most famous examples of uh, polish and not only polish artists it's romano palka who uh, uh, who was considered very often by many uh, people as a French artist because most of his life he spent in France. While uh, his name doesn't sound French. <laughs> well, the other artist is Wojciech Fangor, uh, who is very often considered an American artist, and he lived most of his life in the United States, indeed. So he moved back in po to Poland only uh, in the 90s. Well, that's an interesting issue. Like, how can people, especially even now with the globalization of the mm. everything via the internet and social media and all this, like, how do people choose where to attribute themselves to? Like, is it where you were born or is it where you were practicing your craft? Or, like, how, what's the right way to do that, I guess, these days? Yeah, well, that's uh, that depends uh, quite a lot on the personal preferences. Yeah. I cannot really tell. Uh, there's no, there's no like industry standard that like this is the way you should do it. No, I don't think so. Okay, no. fair enough. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not. You, you know, I'm a professor and I'm a, yeah. and I'm I'm a practicing artist, but I, I hmm. the gallery side, I haven't worked in galleries in. 20 years so like yeah. the the whole market itself i have it's changed so dramatically especially with social media mm. and the whole globalization yes. of everything so do you use social media very much not very much but we do use we yeah. try to be present on both instagram and uh, facebook uh, it makes a little bit complicated again because of the local thing that uh, in this case is language and uh, so we try to keep everything uh, as well in English, but not forgetting that our main public is Polish. So yeah, I've noticed that a lot on Instagram, in particular, like the when a gallery or an artist writes in their native language, the hashtags mm. will then be in their native language. So like it's an, I, I then can't find them so because i can't mm. i don't know whatever they're saying in their native language to search that hashtag and it feels like english is sort of becoming the go-to language to make it just easier to be found via social media yeah but you know that's that's also quite a subtle difference between instagram and facebook or the website because um in case of Instagram, it's very image-based yeah. uh, medium, so you don't need much to write, and it's enough when you just uh, put your hashtags. You just do the description of the of the artwork that mm -hmm. you're showing there. That's for me the most important. And 
you don't need to do any bigger kind of explanation what it is or curatorial text because there is no space even for that. And people don't read it anyways, not on Instagram. Well, Facebook is a little bit different because then you have more space to describe what you are up to, what's, what is it about, uh, how to get there and so on. So there are all other kind of informations and obviously on the website you can choose whether to publish some more text about it or not and if you do then you have this challenge to do it uh, at least in two languages which is uh, done by most of the galleries actually that they are active internationally mm. and you can see some of the galleries having french english german and chinese for example which is well mandarin that is now very it's more and more often language that is appearing as uh, as interface language so, uh, to art market with the art market the art market it's very interesting because the art market seems to be getting bigger it's like more global let's say yes but in many ways it's actually getting more local like like for instance like you you're you, you're coming to things like positions art fair in berlin yes. and you're going to these art fairs in italy and i'm not sure what other ones you well know. in shanghai we, we've you've been, been to shanghai there. okay so but as, Perhaps, much, as, yeah. as much as there's globalization, there's still a lot of localization. Like it still starts locally. I think it's a game we are all playing a little bit because we're not showing anything that has to do with a folklore or a typical something from that mm -hmm. part of the world. It's uh, rather that we work with people that we can easily access. Mm -hmm. And that's uh, that's main focus. If we have an excellent Japanese or I don't know, South African artists in Poland, then we will probably address uh, this person as well and try to uh, work together. Well, that's that's an interesting choice because that that's the kind of stuff I'm getting to is that when you choose to go to these international markets yes. via these art fairs, you have to be very selective on who you take. Like you yes, and you're expected also to show certain things because obviously you're coming from some place that it's one of the one only gallery or one of the few galleries coming from there. Obviously, when you uh, bring somebody who is already present in for other galleries, there is not much variety to the third when you're doing that. And you risk also being not accepted, for example. But there is also another strategy that uh, a very interesting one that uh, you when somebody is uh, following galleries and observing art first, uh, once in a while, uh, it's possible to to identify that phenomena that there are galleries who are originally from one place, but they are going to a fair that is very different spot of the world, and they are showing local artists from there where the art fair is, in order to get people who are contacts of this artist to the booth. Very often also putting together one artist that is from the place where the art fair takes, or the country where the art fair takes, takes place, right. and the artist from original uh, home country. Uh, home country. Yeah. So it's like both are profiting in a way. So the, I mean, these, we all know that like these international art fairs are some sort mm. of cunning plans and like you, you come up, every gallery sort of comes at it from some different way like this is one strategy that you just yes. talked about i mean have you found them so how long have you been doing art fairs it's been at least five years five yeah. years and ha the so the questions that i always wonder is like are they actually like do you see the 
so since you've had five years to sort of watch the progress of the potential growth or sales or acceptance or critical feedback or whatever, have you seen the benefits of, of participating? Well, it's uh, main main benefits that is for sure uh, every time it's uh, your PR investment. And then there are contacts and obviously the art fair should be at least about selling things and making a profit, which is not always very easy and very obvious. Well, and that's what I'm sort of getting to. I mean, these art fairs are very expensive for galleries to participate in. Yes, I well, mean, I've looked at the prices of them, and then that doesn't even include the, the man hours and the shipping costs and the insurance and all the other things that go into taking the art and potentially the artists and the people that work at the gallery yes. to this other location for mm. this extended period of time. It's a huge investment and a huge risk that the galleries take to put all their sort of a lot of their eggs, maybe not all, but a lot of their eggs in one basket, hoping for some return. Yes, that's true. It's I would imagine it's very scary. Yeah, and well, that's why also smaller galleries, you see them uh, coming to an art fair just once and then they don't come back because they realize that uh, it was... Uh, way below their expectancies mm -hmm. like, expectations do, yeah like do you have to have a i feel like you when galleries choose to go to art fairs they almost need to set up a, like a three five ten year plan for for the 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 return on investment because if you go into an art fair and you expect a one-to-one -one return like i'm investing this much money mm. and i expect to get this many sales it's never going to do that Mm, not never. You've done. You've been able to do that, where like you throw yeah. down an investment of X amount to, to participate in an art fair, and you actually got that in return. Yeah, that at happened. The art fair. Yeah, yeah. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. But it's it's true that many people say that only the third time or fourth time when you're coming, then it starts really. Uh, um, be uh, profitable for you, right? And then and that's you what get the money you invested uh, previous years back, right? Okay, so I'm not all far off base. On my, no, uh, no, my not at all. But that. you know, there are also different places. There are places who are renowned for having people spending money and being able to not complain about a couple thousand euro that's too much which is unfortunately very often the case in berlin because berlin is still a place more for artists than for collectors uh, to get to know what's happening to hang around to to see this uh, ferment of of many things happening but you know, that's also a very big uh, challenge and issue to find a base of collectors that are not only buying things that you already can guess which is like old stuff that is already established by uh, all kinds of auction houses that you know from from auction that you know mm -hmm. from museums but uh, to get people interested in something that they don't know it's a very difficult task and it's a bit tricky because Many people think Berlin is the perfect place for that kind of people to get in touch with. Yes, I, I, I'm is... an American, and like my outsider, you know, my ignorant American impression of the German or the the European art market is that Berlin is like, oh, the Berlin is the mecca. It's where you go for contemporary works because they're doing all these great things. 
but now that I'm here, mm. people keep saying like, eh, mm. <laughs> maybe the, the, maybe as an artist, yes. Berlin is a great place. But it's I keep hearing stories about how the 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 collectors oh, there just aren't as many or as robust a collector base as I guess mm. my ignorance I sort of assumed was here. Yes, but you know it's uh, I I know for sure that there are many uh, well not thousands but still enough very uh, important rich collectors living in Berlin and around. But my impression is that they never go to art fairs in Berlin. Really? They will go to London, they would go to Basel. Mm. Um, it's a little bit like the film festival Berlinale, you know. Mm -hmm. You have different uh, people going to Berlinale. And some of the people, uh, I mean this upper class Berlin, uh, they would rather rarely go to Berlinale, they would go to Cannes. Because that's not their... Uh, yeah, who wants to go to a party in their own backyard where they can go to a party exactly. in some exotic location? Yeah, Everybody yeah. wants the exotic location. Especially if they have an apartment just close by. Sure. Or, yeah, okay, you were saying something about how different art fairs sort of have different clientele coming to them i guess yeah so that's, like that's for sure some yeah. are better known for people purchasing and some are better known for curator maybe curator curators Absolutely, showing yeah. up more so than like sales mm -hmm. so it, this is all new to me like this is fascinating so could you give me some examples of like one or another that, that are known that have a reputation for one or a different? Well, that's not that obvious that they ha they could have an etiquette for that. Right. You know, that's that's something that uh, many people would like to know, and there is uh, there is no. Yeah, that's what I'm uh, looking for. I'm no looking for that <laughs> recipe for no. that. But uh, definitely, there are regions or um, or cities that are known for being richer than the other ones. Hmm. And uh, and again, I'm coming back a little bit to my considerations, uh, my previous consideration about middle class, hmm. because if you have a very strong middle class, uh, then you have much better chances to be able to sell not only as the biggest gallery at the fair and the most famous one, but also as a, somebody who is not that famous and who is also presenting somebody who is very good quality uh, artist, but is not uh, not uh, worldwide known. Mm -hmm. And uh, why I'm referring again to this middle class, because very prof very often there are professionals in visual culture that they are there and they trust their own eyes what they're buying. Because most of the people, especially the people who don't have time to uh, see everything and make judgment on their own and they're actually you know, uh, professional in uh, investments uh, and not in art history. Mm -hmm. uh, they have advisors, they have their, uh, uh, you know, accountants uh, and oh, all yeah. kinds of people around them who will just take them to one, three, four uh, booths mm -hmm. and that's it. And they will make their, uh, their shopping uh, there. And they will not even have a gaze uh, anywhere else because they their time is very valuable and they trust the people who are paying uh, to be uh, experts on that. So it's, 
it's a game that is also not very transparent but you can already get some ideas about how it is played more or less you know just seeing that and again when you have people who don't have this kind of advisors and they trust themselves because they are professional watching uh, thousands uh, millions of pictures mm -hmm. and artworks they would know and recognize where is something new refreshing interesting uh, well done or if it's uh, something that is trying to copy something that was sold uh, somewhere else i feel like there's a lot more derivative art like things that are copying and and yes. repeating and things like this it seems like i mean memes you know on the social media and all that but like but i I see artwork that I the, I see very specific lineages uh, more often than I have in the past. I think like I feel like it's becoming more common to to mimic or copy as artist. But you're not you're not an artist. We're not here to talk. About that. <laughs> yes, perhaps I'm the wrong person. Yeah, to yeah, talk yeah. About I'll talk to another artist <laughs> about that. When you sit back as a gallery and you're choosing your art fairs, uh, why have you chosen? So you've done. Shanghai art is it you did Basel in Shanghai no no I did uh, well there is no Basel in Shanghai darn it it's, uh, Hong, it's Kong. Uh, Hong Kong and uh, in Shanghai you have two uh, big art fairs it's art 21 mm -hmm. that was the one that I participated in and Westbund and uh, most of the non-Asian galleries from United States and Europe, uh, they are participating in both fairs. Mm. And uh, well, for sure, you can find their Gagosian just to name one. Uh, but you can obvious. guess the rest. Uh, yes. Yeah, Pace and all the others. Exactly. Yeah, I can confirm. <laughs> Yes, and that's that's extremely interesting uh, place, extremely interesting market, and very different also, um, very different uh, collectors because in uh, China, it's a very fast changing society and uh, growing um, uh, wealth. And uh, which is connected to that, there is a certain competition between big collectors and their private museums. Yes, because I've there heard is stories some kind about of race of, between private museums, who is like more prestigious and mm. so on. Yeah, I, I, I was reading something about the hiring of uh, superstar architects to design yeah. these as well. Like this becomes this huge competition over there as well. Yeah, that's exactly that. So, okay, so, but why did you choose, like, because you had to make the conscious choice to go to that market. What made you say, like, oh, you know what, I believe that our artists and our gallery can can reach that market. There'll be, there'll be an interest over there. Well, it's very promising, uh, promising market and, uh, and, extremely vast pool of uh, collectors of people who are more increasingly more interested in art but also interested in exchange from the perspective of Poland but also from the perspective of China both countries they are um, growing collaborations and it starts with uh, uh, with soft power as they often say mm -hmm. And China is investing a lot of money in Europe. I think it's also inevitable, uh, the process that we are seeing. 
that will be more and more intense this exchange between China and Europe and uh, that's something that we wanted to uh, experience on our own and also go forward to embrace it instead of um, just dreaming about it and uh, and waiting things to happen for their own and and so you went there for the first time when in November last year oh okay so not even a year did it um, meet your expectations? Did you, or did you have expectations? Well, that's a good question because obviously everybody has some kind of expectation, but uh, it's, um, on the other hand, would be a little bit exaggerated to say that there were uh, particular expectations. Right. And definitely uh, it was very surprising on, uh, in many ways. I'm sure culturally it was it's just even like the way business is done as well yeah that's true in China for example it's something we need to uh, get used to it and learn certain things are going extremely fast certain things are going very slow mm. and obviously it's uh, it's saying that you say nothing because you say both things that are contradictory but it is a little bit like that that we are confused when you when we when we are seeing how things are being done but uh, i'm i'm very confident about the fact that uh, it's going to be more and more important the question is also in uh, how far for Chinese uh, collectors would be important to support Chinese art in comparison to purchasing uh, Western uh, art. Right. Because there is not very clear connection and uh, it's, I, I'm sure it's a very complex net of interdependencies and uh, very not always transparent situations. Who is who? And by the way, there are many artists, like in case of Polish artists we were talking about, that they can be considered Chinese, but they live for 40, 30 years uh, in Canada, in the United States, in France, in Germany. I know myself several uh, in Germany that they are having Chinese passports, but they are living in Germany for a very long time. One thing that I always wonder about with galleries is what are the criteria? How do they select their artists? Um, particularly as things like, are when galleries sit down, are they thinking like, okay, our existing roster is this people, so we're, we're trying to fill a hole uh, of like, we need a whatever to f sort of round out our roster, mm. or is it, um, or are you just struck sometimes? You're just like, this person is amazing, we need to represent them. And how do you find these artists? You know, because there's the old thing of like, oh, drop your portfolio, or email your portfolio. Yes. Does that ever work? That uh, hardly works. And actually, you've probably been told several times that it's something that... Uh, I have, but I'm just looking for more affirmation that that does usually, not work. Usually, uh, it gives... Uh, if it gives an, any effect, then it's rather negative. And then uh, it's better to avoid sending portfolio around while not asked for. And... Um, there, there is very old school way of um, getting interested in artists, which is when some other person uh, advises to have a look at that, that we trust, that we're friends with, and so on. Then 
you give a shot and when you see what it is you take a little bit of your time and then it uh, hardly happens very fast because then it's important to give some time also to 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 look what this person's doing how things are changing how he how he or she works uh-huh. and uh, what uh, are the exhibitions that were done what is the general interest of uh, of this artist and then um uh, and then propose a show, preferably a group show first and then uh, later to, to do uh, uh, solo shows and uh, and investing our energy and money in that artist as well. Because obviously when you do a show or when you publish a catalogue or when you even just show this artworks, uh, this artist's artworks, uh, that means that you are putting your energy and time and, and you're not showing something else. Well, and your reputation. And your reputation, of course, as well. Yeah. Yes, yes. That's that's also very important. What people very often forget about, that they are also uh, asking themselves. Well, people who are not really professionals, often they ask themselves why gallery usually take fifty percent of the value of, of the work, which is exactly this, mm, and. Uh, the choice of artists is also very often based on what is possible to see at group shows and at, uh, well, sometimes art fairs as well, but mainly uh, group shows and uh, curated uh, exhibitions uh, that we can attend, uh, well, especially traveling not very far away but uh, meeting uh, exactly this a little bit different things like uh, this uh, next week actually starts in warsaw warsaw gallery weekend and uh, so it means that september and october there are very intense months probably the most uh, uh, heavily uh, charged months uh, from the Warsaw perspective because there is Berlin, there is uh, uh, Warsaw Gallery Weekend. I know that several uh, Polish galleries there go to Vienna Contemporary, which is a week later. And then uh, there is uh, also freeze at the beginning of October. Autumn and winter is so like actually you, you can have every weekend um, planned mm. if you are obsessed with uh, art first and going to that kind of thing events. Well, and Warsaw Gallery Weekend we are participating this year also um, with. Uh, a British artist, so it's one Polish artist and one British artist to double solo show, and uh, the British artist is Stephen Wilkes. Fortunately for us, uh, he is uh, based in Berlin, so it's pretty comfortable also to make this uh, collaboration uh, more um, more efficient and uh, closer to also be able to to see each other more often than going to London and especially for transport of the artworks. Absolutely. You mentioned something about like just representing artists and things like this and it sort of made me think about exclusivity. Uh, yes. Do you do you all choose to do exclusivity or not? Because I've been hearing different stories from different galleries. Mm, we don't have exclusivity contracts with uh, none of our artists. But it doesn't mean that we're perfectly fine with artists doing whatever they want with whoever they want. 
uh, obviously there must be mutual understanding of what's happening. Mm-hmm. There must be trust uh, because then, uh, well, it's uh, it's always uh, a risk uh, what happens next. Uh, if somebody is loyal or not, if somebody is uh, doing something that is also putting in jeopardy our own uh, work and uh, and especially it's connected with the prices so for example if we have uh, an artist that is collaborating with other galleries uh, i think it's extremely important with uh, to to have an agreement with other galleries about uh, stable prices so there is no differences and that's a little bit the risk that we can take for example that polish market is weaker than french market but if we have the same artists so we have to keep up the same prices even if we don't sell uh, that good but then it's it's our decision to have this good artist with high prices that are for from the from another market uh, but uh, that's that's how it goes we cannot obviously uh, make it cheaper because then it it's confusing everybody it's a difficult issue because not every market or every market has a different cost of living in it basically of course, so yes. so the the sort of the va- like i'm trying to think like ikea you know ikea would probably vary their prices yes. based on the market even yes. though it's the exact same product whereas mm-hmm. art we can't do that well, we shouldn't, at least, yeah. Well, but we can't. Well, maybe in the past we could, but now with the internet and the connectedness of the inner of the globe, you can't one place be cheaper and one place be more expensive because it 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 just won't be allowed. It would be a very no. bad. It would look bad on the artists and would probably look bad on the gal- the, the multiple galleries that have different prices. I think you're a little bit overestimating the power of internet and all this global interconnection. Because, I do. Because art markets uh, or markets, they still have in very big part a uh, pretty old school way of communicating and also... Uh, secrecy is uh, quite a big value uh, in that market so yes we talked a lot off microphone that we're not going to be willing to talk about on microphone yeah (laughs) yeah but I mean well like the secrecy things like there's there's the fact that every price that like let's say theoretically is on a price sheet or on on, on a wall has a built-in 20% negotiation into it no, not necessarily. Very often there are contracts with artists, for example, that not necessarily exclusivity contracts that uh, I, I've seen that several times and it seems to be like a standard that uh, you have 10%. 10%, okay. That you don't have to consult the artist if you're negotiating that, that you are allowed to go down 10%. Uh, without consent of the artist, and and that and if he did that, that would be five percent off of yours, yes. and five percent off yes. of theirs. Yes. Okay, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I worked at a gallery. We had it, and it was basically we had up to twenty percent was negotiable. Mm. So that that seems yeah, to but be... this is a convention that can be changed, obviously. Yeah. Well, but why why did, why it's fascinating that the art market, unlike 
let's take Ikea just as a good yes. example. They're never going to be an advertiser or supporter of this podcast, so I can make fun of them. <laughs> but the, the, the Ikea doesn't, like, they put a price, that's the price. You know, like, you mean, mm. you go to the grocery store, there's a price on the, 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 the stand for the thing, that's the price. It's not negotiable. But when it comes to art, mm. there's this expectation for buyers and collectors that there is some negotiation available. Why? Well, to begin with, uh, there are no no uh, ultimate criteria of the value of the artwork. There are many factors that can influence the price. Well, people often say that the value of art is whatever somebody's willing to pay for it. Yes, but it's well, it's a kind of funny way to put it and very anecdotic. But uh, yeah. but the truth is a little bit more uh, complicated because then you, for example, many people, they immediately connect the value of the artwork with the time spent on doing it. But it's it, in my opinion, it does not apply to the value of the artwork because, you know, you can spend years doing something that's that's not really good anyway uh it's true and um what uh, what it means that it's not not completely wrong because if it's if it's a good thing let's say it means indirectly that it contributes to the value not because of the time spent and the effort spent like the suffering of somebody doing something patiently the years of training involved as well yes that all does not really matter the, the what matters is that because it took so long to do it there are not many uh, artworks available and the quantity of the available artworks or the existing artworks mm make their value uh, actually uh, out you know it make out the value that's an interesting balance so you're basically saying an artist theoretically i'm just i'm yes. sort of generalizing what you just said but basically an artist who makes less work each work has a higher value than an artist who does a large quantity of work therefore theoretically they might have a, a lesser value simply because there's more available on the market yeah well it's a tricky thing because artists should produce as much as they can anyways right uh so because like don't slow down just to try and get a higher price yeah 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 exactly that's that's the worst they can, they can do because it's very important they have enough to organize exhibitions you know i don't know any uh serious artist with success who produced only several artworks it must be as much as possible you know then there is a selection there is a curatorial choice and so on there is a gallery's choice and obviously many of things they can be considered as not really that good and they will be then destroyed or repainted or whatever and and that's that's absolutely okay but for example let's focus on the uh, example of the artist who died young Mm -hmm. So there are not many things that we can have from of them. Sure. Well, and they're dead, so they're never made anything more. And they're dead. Anymore. So immediately the value of these things is higher as if uh, they were be still living and producing more and more and more. Mm -hmm. Or for example, uh, Picasso Blue Period. Mm -hmm. 
you know, there are very few paintings from that period. And it's actually not the period that he's most famous for, I know. but they're extremely valuable just because they are uh, so, so uh, few. Yeah, it's interesting. I keep equating it back to the diamonds and how mm. De Beers, there's enough diamonds in existence that literally yeah. everybody in the world could have, you know, four or five. But De Beer holds them back and keeps them and, yes. and only puts out so many into the market every year. Yeah. And and so it's it it's not necessarily about what well, I should say. It's not necessarily about quality or quantity or anything like this. Mm. But it's about just creating a sense that there's a limited quantity available at any given time mm. in order to yes. elevate the prestige of the piece and the value of the piece. Mm. Yeah, and you know there are also a big series of examples that they are shaking a bit this perspective, and um, making us really confused because these rules does not really apply or apply, but in a way that we are uh, full of doubts appreciating these big names like. Uh, Jeff Koons or Ai Weiwei. I was thinking Salvador Dali. Who are having uh, dozens of assistants producing mm. uh, unlimited amounts of uh, artworks. Mm. And then it's it's like an industrial uh, production almost. Right. And uh, when you see that somebody is producing things in editions, and you can never be sure, even if the manufacturing of one piece, it took time or it took much uh, investment, effort and so on. But if there is an army of assistants doing that, mm -hmm. then obviously you can have uh, starting, you can start having doubts about how many of similar can be around. Well, that's a great question. I would love to talk to you a little more about this. I'm a photographer, that's my background. Mm. So like the idea of additioning is sort of ingrained into my artistic exactly. practice. Do you as a gallery, do you work with only painting, sculpture, sort of one of kind, unique pieces, or do you deal in some artists that work in additions? Yeah, we also do additions, yes. Yes. It's mainly silk screen or fine art prints. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Silk screening's fabulous. So you stay away from photography then? Well, we uh, used to do from uh, time to time photography as well, but it's this is extremely market. difficult yeah, yeah. and, and it totally actually aware. works uh, mainly for galleries that are specialized in photography and actually uh, limited only to photography. They have very specific uh, target group and uh, collectors and curators that only love yes. photography and that kind of stuff. And the, there's a whole, because it's so easy to duplicated photograph these days mm, especially exactly. these days like i mean it's become more difficult i've actually gotten away from doing photography just it's for also that very difficult to explain some some collectors the value of photography and to convince that when there is a very high quality photography very often the production costs are very high are much higher than painting yeah but they can't see it so they, yeah but like, they see it's just a photography so yeah. it means it could be reproduced in thousands of copies anyways absolutely okay small question on that so like mm. additions um this is a little nuanced thing but yes when so let's say your silkscreen editions that you carry yes. when the so they do short runs big runs like 10 or 50 or 250 what do they do no actually we have a rule that we don't go more than 20. great okay 
within that 20, do you then like price them differently? Like, so it's like one through seven, a certain price, seven through 20, 14, another price and so on. No, we don't. But actually, that that's a good question because we're considering doing that. But um, because the prices are not that high, right. the differentiating would be right, just confusing. Well, for, that's the thing is, like once they start getting sold, mm. there are therefore then less on the market, yeah, exactly. and therefore they're they're higher theoretically higher value. Exactly. So that's I've always been interested in that because I know of a. A photographer who does this he actually mm -hmm. has sort of tiered pricing basically like one yes. through five is this price five through ten is this price and so and they increase as they mm -hmm. get to the end because in my mind me being the artist not the collector i always think number one of one is the most valuable and number or sorry one of 20 would be the most valuable yes whereas 20 of 20 to me is the least valuable but under this tiered pricing structure 20 of 20 is the highest priced one one of 20 would be the cheapest no one first second are always the most valuable but then there we go you know because we're i'm confusing talking to you now uh, very often the word value and price but okay. it's not exactly I'm using them the interchangeably. same. Well, I'm using them kind of interchangeably. Well, let me explain on this example because uh, the price could be the same, but the value of the first and second is higher. Because when you sold already uh, from 1 to 17, uh, then obviously the last three ones are having higher price because there are only three left available. But if somebody having the first or second decides to sell it, mm. is fully entitled to ask for more than you're asking for the 18. Okay. Because it's nicer number, you know, like going back. But it's, again, it's like, Yes, depends who is paying attention to that and is willing to give that money for that. Right. Uh, because some people, they will just take uh, the cheaper one uh, without really caring for the number. Yeah, I mean... Uh I, you know, I'm an art snob. I, I'm involved mm -hmm. in it. So, so like, I like the, uh, personally, I would go for the artist proof or the one of one, one of yeah, 20 yeah. kind of thing. I want the, the early run ones. Personally, I don't want the yes. late run ones, yes. but everybody's different. Some, you know, some people. And well, also with silkscreen, it's, uh, there are minimal differences between copies. Hmm. That's the beauty of silkscreen. Oh, and yeah. there well, is one if thing. If they're is using number a good and stencil and good, good inks and all that. Yeah. Yeah, well, but sometimes it's like, a, you know, I know artists that they actually can, like to play, that they a little bit, uh, every copy, they are not exactly like perfectly done in the same way, but mm -hmm. they are a little bit... Sure, vary the uh, colors vary. a little bit. Not really the colors. The colors as well can be varied, but also, you know, when you move a little bit the mattress, like of one uh, tenth of a millimeter, uh, then you have this uh, effect. Slight off yes. registration. That I, personally, I love the the unique qualities that happen. Mm. In not uh, when I look for a good screen print, I don't look for perfection. I look for actually yeah. for those beautiful little imperfections. Yeah. I exactly, think they're the things that make them interesting. Yeah, yeah. Because otherwise, you know, the perfection with the computers became something extremely boring. 
Yeah, I mean, this thing is like, why buy a screen print that's perfect? Because they could have just digitally printed that. Yeah. I want the, I want to see the handmade imperfections. Mm-hmm. That's the point of buying a hand-done yeah. screen print, yeah, yeah. not perfection. Yeah, exactly. But I'm snobby that way. Well, that's what uh, you, know, you call aura of the artwork. Between you and your father, you have over 23 years of experience in the arts industry. One thing that I often ask about is if somebody were listening and they were a curator or an artist or a gallerist and they want to actually do what you do, what kind of things would you try to steer them away from or what kind of advice might you give them to try and do it well? And the big question is about doing it well now. Because a lot of us, we can read books and read philosophical things about how it was done, how the contempor- how the art world used to be. But how, how are, what are some tricks or techniques that you're starting to find that would seem to work for the art world now? Yeah, that's a good question. In the <laughs> sense that you're referring to experience that is 23 years old, even even longer, to say something about what how to start now. Well, but and well, but, you, and, but, but it's the, absolutely it's the true. progress yeah. that you've built to some knowledge. Yes, that's that's definitely true. That every time has a different uh, conditions, different possibilities, and uh, I cannot really imagine doing the same things as they were done 23 25 years ago now like do you still print invitation postcards and put them in the mo- mail and send them sometimes out? yes do you? Yes, yes we do but not not for every show there are some particular shows uh, that are important for us to do that way uh, but um, it's less and less and that's true that's actually mostly it's uh, invitation per email or Facebook events. Facebook events like parallelly this. to that, yeah. yes. That's that's it. But what would be the advice? It's advice would be to um, to reassure that uh, there is a base of uh, artists that one can collaborate with and to have uh, um, certain liberty to uh, invest time without counting on uh, immediate uh, profits to have uh, to have it secured in a way and obviously what's sometimes uh, in all, generally in business probably it's uh, one of the most important things is to have some uh, people to address to as clients collectors because just showing some uh, good artworks, uh, it's it's definitely not enough. Because uh, getting right people to get intre- to to be interested in it, it's uh, it's never gonna happen if somebody is not really actively looking for them. It's interesting. So, like, but it's really very trivial. Everything to give an advice that is more fascinating in particular, it's very very hard. Well, no, like you gave a good, the one thing that I heard that it sort of stuck, I mean, the, the, is the trying to make sure you have the collectors almost like you need to, like, I'm trying to think of like people that I know that are in the industry and like thinking and trying to get into the gallery industry. 
that they almost might be like an art consultant or uh, mm. or a dealer or do some other thing to build some clientele and some some collectors yes. and some connections and meet and have the the people because walking into like just saying I have a good eye for art and I have a good nose for business is not enough to run an art gallery like you you really have to have those connections yeah well you can you can observe in the in the world of galleries this uh, generally two categories that are uh, both having advantages and disadvantages there are galleries that they're principally uh, businessmen that they are focused on how to uh, develop investments how to deal with uh, with money basically and that's what they studied they studied economy or banking investments and mm -hmm. they and their very big uh, advantage is that if already from the time of their university they have a pool of contacts of other people who studied the same and they're actually making money out of money and so on and so on. So there is a potential group of their clients already. Yeah, my, my first guest on the podcast, actually, Peter Hayek, yeah. he was a lawyer. And, and yeah. so he's actually how he started his business was he would go out and select art at for his lawyer friends yeah. and so like yeah. that actually began his clientele. But this very often uh, can result in a situation that gallery has a very confusing program that this person is actually doing, uh, learning by doing uh, what art is and how to judge it, how to choose it, and uh, can be also uh, something that can irritate somebody who is uh, more specialized in art history or art uh, in general uh, and less perhaps in economics or just doing the business longer and knows better than somebody who is arriving with this enthusiasm and knowledge about uh, uh, money operations but actually is just guessing what's uh, what can make what can make sense in art and is thinking about how to grow its own his own operation rather than how to grow a gallery mm -hmm. um, and uh, there is always this kind of conflict I think and uh, myself and my father we both studied philosophy we never studied economy interesting so uh, we are on the other side of the, uh, of the line and uh, it's uh, been always a passion and a challenge to do that and it's uh, it makes for us then this economical part a little bit difficult because that's something we perhaps find not so big fascination for as for the art itself as curating and writing about it because we both uh, write articles and we both uh, curate shows not only in uh, our gallery but also in other galleries public galleries with artists that uh, we don't necessarily represent but mm -hmm. we know them and we're also uh, being friends with many artists that we are not including in a commercial uh, uh, plan or activities of the yet. gallery yet <laughs> sometimes it's yes. always possible yes that gives another possibilities and there are galleries like like us as well and they are uh, some of them they're doing very well 
but it's always a struggle uh, that um, writing takes a lot of time and concentration, as uh, some of you know. And uh, I hate writing about art. And it's challenging. And obviously, it's the time that somebody else is making a business plan that you probably should be doing as well. Right. Well, actually, it's, you mentioned something about collaboration. I, I'm sure when you were talking about collaborating, you meant between artist and the gallery. But do you find that um, collaboration is a necessary part of being a gallery? Like, So you can't just be an art gallery and sit in your art gallery and just expect buyers to come in and expect inter people to be interested. You Do you have to actively get out and collaborate with, like you're saying, like other institutions to curate or to write things or to do Like, is that collaboration a necessary part of being in the contemporary visual arts gallery industry? I think so, especially if you are intending to have a gallery of uh, high quality of, uh, of and recognition as art gallery and not just uh, art sales. Uh, that's, and that's an that's important difference. difference yes. yes. And uh, well, gallery is also expected to uh, help uh, develop careers of artists to support them even you know it means not necessarily that they are all young artists or uh, that we're speaking about uh, young artists uh, in general that can be that all artists are already mid-career or uh, actually already with the career uh, that they made but there is always important to support something we believe in that is a good quality that may be a rediscovery for example that support is something that is needed all the way long. That's not uh, only just to give uh, uh, like um, starting uh, kick, but uh, also to to be uh, to grow together in a way. I've been talking to some other people, and they've also often said that like commercial galleries, the word commercial. Because mm. I'm a bit of a semantic person. I listen yes. to you, you know into every word. Commercial seems to be a word that's used this in Europe that defines a gallery that is more focused on sales than on growing the artist's career. Is that a, does that sound right to you? Mm, well, I I wouldn't make that uh, opposition. That's fine. I, I I'm just I'm uh, trying to understand if that is a common word that's yes. used or is it well only the people I've spoken to because commercial gallery is also developing careers of artists. When you manage to sell one artist for a certain price this year, and when you manage then in three years to sell the same artist, the same artworks, thanks to your work for 40% more, it means you're still commercial, but you contributed very much to the uh, career of the artist. Well, see, for me, coming from America, with like, and maybe this is just my own upbringing and my own training. Maybe it's not mm -hmm. a common thing in America, but the term commercial gallery I used as defining basically a gallery that sales occur in versus non-profit galleries or NGOs or mm -hmm. exhibition spaces, which basically were non-commercial spaces. Yeah. And so, so we used it or I used it, I shouldn't say this for anybody else, I used it in that way. So basically a commercial gallery is where you sold, where 
artwork could be bought and sold. Exactly. And non-commercial galleries were more about the prestige, the exhibition, the non-profit or cause or whatever. Um, so I didn't see it as a dirty word, but like mm. here, it, I feel like in Europe, the word commercial gallery has a very negative connotation. Well, there is always um, a risk that somebody is uh, seeing that way, but I think they're they're profoundly wrong and sometimes even uh, hypocrite because there are, you know, non-profit spaces, uh, there can be very different prestige. There, It can be national gallery. Well, it's in the name, it's a gallery, right? And then can be. I always find that really weird, though. Why like, are national galleries? They're they're museums. They're not gallery. To me, a gallery is again a place you could buy artwork. A museum is a place where you view artwork. No, it's actually not exactly that, that way. Because okay. at least in Europe, museum is something that has a collection, and uh, it's um, it has a scope uh, pedagogically uh, showing what is historically uh, relevant, okay. while gallery is more like a space for display of, uh, of things that could be also collection. But generally, when we're speaking about contemporary uh, art, like in, in case of Berlin, there you have Neue Nationalgalerie, that can have and has um, a collection on its own, but there is the space, it's uh, for temporary exhibitions. Okay. Uh, that is more presenting a curatorial choice of what's relevant now. That's good, because I've been very confused about this, like what's a gallery, what's a museum, because there have been a lot of places that I would define as museums, but the, the your differentiation of having a a museum has a collection a, like historical collection right. yeah. but a gallery does not necessarily have a collection and often yes. is focused more on sort of a curatorial expression or a yeah. program kind of a thing i like that okay that makes more sense to me well now. you can see the collection of a gallery more like uh, the storage to be used uh, to uh to, in a way, to use a little bit more funny metaphor, to DJ on that storage, to build up uh, uh, an exhibition mm -hmm. uh, or to add something to the exhibition that is actually uh, bringing th works from other places. Right, whereas with like a museum is almost like a, uh, a storage unit where people can come in and do like with academic studies. Uh, exhibition. Like yeah. yeah, but they but they can also like... It can be used for studies. It can be used for exactly, you know, things yeah. like this, but that's not really what a gallery would be. Okay, I, I get it. It's, it's becoming more clear for me. Thank you very much for that <laughs> because I've been very confused by that here in Europe. I can understand because sometimes you cannot tell the difference, especially looking at what they're showing or the buildings. Yeah, the like, buildings. You know. Like That's the thing. is like If it's a big, monumental, beautiful building, I generally say museum. Yeah. But, but here in Europe, they often call them galleries. And yes. I, I'm always sort of like, what that's okay. But the idea of what you're talking about, yeah. the background of it, the, yeah. the, the structure of it, I think it yeah. makes and more sense. And then you have another uh, case of non-profit galleries that there are project spaces, artist-run spaces, uh, all kinds of foundations uh, and so on. And um, their prestige 
can be really uh, very different. Uh, you know, it's enough that you and two of your friends, you rent uh, a place uh, for one month and you call it uh, a non-profit artist-run space or whatever, you sure. know, and having a show there, it's not necessarily a turning point in the career of an artist. Well, actually, that's an interesting point because I've had this conversation with other people again. If you're looking to represent an artist and you're looking at their CV... Are you more, I'm not going to say impressed, but let's use the word impressed. Or is it more impressive if they have fewer exhibitions that are at more prestigious locations or larger quantity of exhibitions at, let's say, a lower tier quality? Of course, more prestigious is the better. But uh, it depends because when an artist has many exhibition it means it's active because the problem of many artists is that what we rarely address talking about artists that they have double profession very often oh yeah because it's impossible for young artists or most of them to leave of their art so they have to do a second job which is their day job or a fourth job or fifth jobs yes I know. So an artist who has many exhibitions, it means he's active, he's producing, is making contacts, which is actually a, a double meaning uh, for the gallerist watching the, the CV. It means that the artist cares for his career and is active mm-hmm. and is trying to get connections and probably is able also to bring some people because he's working for his career. He's able to bring more people to the gallery which is always uh, an interesting thing. But on the other hand, it could mean as well that uh, perhaps it's a person who likes to do everything on his own and then uh, you one should be careful because then taking such a person to the gallery would mean that this person will not wait uh, long just to jump to another gallery. Mm. And to do something more and more, you know, it's like you can speculate endlessly on all this kind of situations. Right. All right. Let's come to finishing this up with my last question that I ask everybody. You've listened to the podcast, so I'm sure you've heard this question before, which is part of the structure of the podcast is that I'm trying to learn how, like, sort of how the art world works to be able to navigate it successfully in some way. And so I created a, a quantifiable outcome that I'm attempting to achieve through all of the learning that I'm gaining from everybody that I discuss what these things with by trying to put get a piece of my artwork on exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. <laughs> so my question to everybody, and yes. just to be clear, whatever you're going to tell me, I will do it and I will keep everybody involved by recording a little podcast about my process of trying to get my piece in the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So it will be completely transparent. So all of my fears, my concerns, my stresses, people not responding to my emails, everything. I'm going to keep everybody involved with whatever I do of whatever you're about to recommend me to do. And I'm not looking for the end result. I'm not asking Mm. you to give me like the phone number of a curator at the museum, but I'm saying, 
as an artist listening to this podcast, what is something that something that I can do in my career that will sort of put me on the right path to that result? Well, definitely would be uh, a good thing to know the place and uh, the people who work there. Uh, not uh, walking around with and waving portfolio, definitely, but uh, but just to be able to imagine how to deal with the space, what's the program, how these people uh, think, and try to connect to that, and try to also imagine what you're doing, in which way it can be in a dialogue with the program and the profile of the place. And uh, that's generally uh, how, how it should be done. And then in details, obviously, the more time you are around these people, the better. But obviously well, not. But they're everyone. in New York. I'm in Prague. And then, <laughs> yes. Well, but the point is, is like the people who are listening to this podcast, mm. they, they, they're not going to be in the city oftentimes where these prestigious yes. places are. They're not going to be in London for the Tate Modern. They're not going to be in New York City for, well, all the places in New York City. They're not going to be in Paris. So they're going to be in some other place. So they can't, well, it's not that they can't, but it's it's substantially more difficult to be personally and actively involved mm -hmm. in those things. So, and again, it's not about, it's not about the end result of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Yes. It's about, I'm sitting here right now, I'm in Berlin, I, I live in Prague and and basically, like, what can an artist do who is living wherever in the world to just put themselves on that path, like, the, like a step in the path to get to the 10 more steps later will get us to that result? Well, there is, as, as you know perfectly, there is no good answer to that. I and, know. And every and, person I talk to gives me a different thing. So yeah. it's, and it's great. And I think the, the best thing is to try to be satisfied with what you are doing as an artist and uh, focus on, on your work to make it, uh, not to forget yourself that the main thing that's the most important is the quality of your work. Because all the rest, uh, you can just lose yourself uh, making strategies and uh, not moving from where you're standing. Right. So basically, don't worry about trying to be in the Museum of Modern Art and yeah. worry more about, well, being a good artist, basically, you know, whatever that means. Exactly. All right. Lovely. I can take that. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.